0: But I'm really excited because we're in our series, Book of Hebrews, and because I'll be in um, i we're really, so I'm, re- I'm really excited, and um, so I thought, who else better to take us in the next chapter, Hebrews chapter 11, than with, uh, than with Andrew Fistness. Kia ora koutou. pakalofa uh, Wow, good to see uh, some familiar faces, and a bunch of new faces too, have not been down for a while. And as Pastor Ant said, uh, the book of Hebrews is an amazing book, and one of the themes in it is better. One of our songs this morning had that theme, right? Better, better, what was it? Better something. And we get the better chapter today, chapter 11. Uh, It's really exciting. And so, yeah, just going to start off uh, reading the first three verses, which kind of introduces us to this chapter on faith. So what does it say? Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Indeed by it our ancestors received their commendation. By faith we understand that the ages were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was made from things that are not visible or not seen. So that's, that's a kind of cool introduction. It's not exactly a definition of faith, but it tells us a few things, doesn't it? That faith is related to this assurance that we have in our hearts of something that we're hoping for, but it's a solid hope, not just a, oh, I hope this happens. And it's a conviction of things not seen because we can't see God, right? But we believe that he is the true and ultimate reality that we base our lives on by faith. So faith's not just this like, mindset that we crank up through positive thinking. It's actually based on the reality of God himself. And it's the decision to live in that way, as if God is actually real, even though we can't see him. Trusting in that unseen reality. So just as we kick off... In this chapter, I want to just uh, mention a few things that that pop up in here and if you've heard any of the previous messages, uh, just to remind you about those. But the writer to the Hebrews, he's talking about perseverance a lot and who knows that we need to persevere in our faith sometimes. And it's probably written in the early 60s of the first century after quite an intense period of persecution. Because all the first believers were from Jewish background, but some Jews did not accept Jesus as the Messiah, as the promised one of God. And they persecuted those first believers. Then it was a bit calm. And then the Romans thought they would have a go too and started to uh, persecute the Christians. And so at the end of chapter 10, the writer's been saying to these guys, don't go back to the old ways there's nothing left for you in the shadows some of you would have heard Pastor dance talk about the shadows and the reality when he talked on chapter 9 and 10 you need endurance after suffering all these things and endure so that you will receive what was promised that's one thing then the ages is the other thing you can see on that verse it says we understand that the ages were prepared by the word of god And it's usually translated world or universe, that word, but actually means ages, can include the world of that age. And he's saying that, like ages is a key concept in Hebrews, and in uh, chapter 9, verse 26, it says, But as it is, he, Jesus, has appeared once uh, for all at the end of the ages, that's plural, to remove sin by the sacrifice of himself. So we get this picture that there's been a series of ages throughout time that have been working towards this huge climax, which was the coming of Christ. Of course, that's in our past now, but we do look forward to his return. So ages is also connected to the idea of covenant in Scripture. And I'm sure you've covered that in Hebrews because this idea of covenant keeps popping up. We don't use the word that much, but, you know, covenant is not just any kind of contract like a rental house or something like that. It's a bit more serious than that. Marriage is a kind of covenant. It's a sacred uh, relationship, and... Covenants are special because they form, they're designed to form a special bond between the two parties. So that could be like two human parties or groups, or it could be between God and uh, a group of people. So, for example, the Treaty of Waitangi is actually recognised as a covenant by Māori and by um, the Pākehā of that time, the missionaries realised that it was a sacred covenant making the two people one and that's part of the the words of the treaty itself and so we can see that actually this um this whole chapter is kind of divided up into three parts of all these so-called heroes of faith in three different eras the pre-flood era before the flood the faith in the patriarchal era those old guys the originators of uh, God's call to Israel and then the Israelite era and that corresponds to actually three covenants there's the creation and uh, ratified in the the Noah covenant and then Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant so just I'm not going to go into those deeply but that's how it's split up so when I looked at it I thought oh so the writer He's mentioned persecution a lot already, and now he's giving the church a series of examples to make them think that they could never measure up, and they might as well just give up now, right? Is that his purpose? No, no, good. I'm glad a lot of you are looking confused when I say that, because that's deliberate misdirection there. So it is easy, though, when we see these big names, if you've read the Bible a lot or you've heard the Bible stories, you know, Abraham, Moses, David, King David, you think, wow, you know, these guys are out of my league. I could never, you know, meet their standard. And some of them, you know, they face some pretty terrifying situations. If you read right through the chapter, we, we can't look at all the verses today, but it says that some of them were stoned to death, So these are the heroes of faith that were commended by God. Some of them were stoned to death. And that was probably the prophet Jeremiah. Have you ever said, I'm going to be like Jeremiah? Just be careful what you wish for. What about Isaiah, that guy that gave these massive prophecies about what God was going to do in the world in the future? Well, it says some of them got sawn in two. And tradition tells us that was the prophet Isaiah. Can you imagine that? Now, don't imagine that. (laughs) It's not good. But these were commended by God for their faith. But, you know, actually, not all of them were these tremendous, amazing people that never did anything wrong. I mean, Isaiah's own testimony of himself in the beginning, when he was already a priest and a prophet, was, I'm a man with unclean lips who lives among unclean people. That's what he, it was his own self-confession. And God got hold of him through that. Moses was disqualified from entering the promised land because of his rash uh, actions with the water and the rock. King David, the man who has said a man after God's heart was guilty of murder and adultery. Pretty serious things. So what I'm gonna do this morning is just pick one character from each of those eras, not all of them, we don't have time for that in our short three hour message. So uh, let's just start off with Noah. Cool guy. By faith, it says in verse 7, Noah, warned by God about events as yet unseen, respected the warning and built an ark to save his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir to the righteousness that is in accordance with faith. Yeah, things unseen. They'd never seen a flood before, let alone a flood of those proportions that would wipe out everything that was not in the ark. Hebrews here calls Noah an heir, which is interesting because an heir is usually someone like way down the line, isn't it? Isn't Noah kind of like the ancestor guy? So I think what we're seeing here is that the writer to the Hebrews is talking to these believers... This is not that long after Christ has died, been resurrected and ascended to heaven. Looking way back to these people in this pre-flood era and, and around that time, and he's linking the faith of that era to their time and saying those guys were actually looking forward to something better than what they had, which of course is Jesus Christ. And so... Noah was an heir to the faith that would come in the future in Christ. And Noah's an interesting character because you, you guys all know Adam, right? The story of Adam and Eve. So Adam was sort of pictured as this representative head of the first human beings. Okay? And then things didn't go well. And actually that world, as we knew it, was wiped away in the flood. And it got started again with Noah and his family, his wife, Three sons and their and their wives, and so Adam, I mean Noah rather, is like a second adam he 's like the new originator, the new head of this uh, new creation, if you like, so it was like a new heavens and a new earth, a new creation, but just a shadow of what was to come later under Christ, who was called who remembers what he was called in uh, Romans five. 1 Corinthians 15, he's called the last Adam and he's the true uh, Adam, the true head of humanity that bringing in this new creation which we get to be a part of. So Noah's a good example for sure but even with Noah, this great guy, there's this really weird story. If you go back and read Genesis, Genesis 9 and they get out of the ark and then he goes and plants a vineyard makes wine gets a bit drunk something really dodgy happens with one of his sons and there's this weird cursing that goes on with um, his descendants the Canaanites and even in this strange little story we get to see that the evil that happened later with the Canaanite people who were going to um, be pushed out of the promised land is that that evil that was in them something had already originated in Noah's family back then so he's a good guy but things were not all perfect and rosy in his family but in this section what is one of the things that we learn about faith what's the sort of statement of faith in that section and we can see it's in verse six that the writer says without faith it's impossible to please God isn't that interesting Without faith, it's impossible to please God. For whoever would approach Him must believe that He exists. Pretty basic foundation, right? If you're going to approach God, believe that He exists, and that He rewards those who seek Him. God rewards those who seek Him. So is, if, if he rewards those that seek Him by faith, does that mean faith is some kind of like human effort and striving, a kind of a work? No, I think that's not the point there. I think the point is, is that whoever seeks God, whoever calls out to God in faith, no matter where they are or what their circumstances are, God responds to that faith. So that is the reward, that our faith is always uh, rewarded. Does it have to be a massive faith? What does it say in Matthew seventeen twenty That even if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed... A tiny little seed that you've got enough faith to say to a huge mountain uproot yourself and be cast into the sea you can read that in Matthew 17 so it's not that these guys had super faith on our next slide it's that God responded to the faith that they had where they were at And that's what came to define these people as their acts of faith, not their mistakes and their flaws and their imperfections. So jump to the next section, and I wanna uh, just focus on Abraham for a little bit. Abraham is a guy who is probably one of the most mentioned Old Testament characters in the New Testament. He is seen as like the forefather Of people that have faith because Abraham existed before the law came and that's held up as something primary the Apostle Paul calls him the father of all the people of faith that we actually become children of Abraham when we believe in Christ so Romans 4 Galatians different places and for Alison and myself, Pastor Ants mentioned that we lived in uh, China for a long time because of God's call on our lives. And we were inspired by the story of Abraham in uh, Genesis 12. But, and uh, it also speaks of this story here in Hebrews where it says Abraham set out for a place not knowing where he was going, but he responded to the call of God. And when Alison and I were called to China... We, we knew where we were going, but we'd never been there before, and we'd looked at some like surrounding areas and checked things out a little bit, but we'd never been to China, but we just packed up all our stuff and our little nine-month-old daughter and got on the plane and arrived in a country that we'd never been to before. That probably wouldn't really happen today. I can't imagine that happening today. <laughs> but... We were crazy, and that's what we did. But it was due to this conviction that we had in our hearts that was really inspired uh, to a large part by Abraham's story. So Abraham's a really amazing guy, but do you wonder, did the writer of the Hebrews and Apostle Paul and others, did they really know all about Abraham's life? Do you think that they knew that not everything Abraham did was actually that great? Do you know that Abraham two times lied about his extremely hot wife? Seriously, his wife was so gorgeous that he thought that the kings in this new land that he was going into were going to kill him and take his wife, so he lied about it and caused all kinds of havoc to to happen in that situation? Do you know another time when he wasn't lying about his wife, (laughs) and they were living together and trying to have a kid even though they were super old and God had promised them they'd have a kid, that they tried to do things their own way, and he took some really bad advice from his wife who suggested, why don't you take my servant and sleep with her and then have a son that way? Maybe that's how God will do it, and he did that. So he listened to this terrible advice, and I know that Wives usually give really good advice, but in this particular case, it was bad advice. Am am I okay, dear? (laughs) Don't want to cross any boundaries here. Um, Where was I? (laughs) So he took some really bad advice, and the scripture doesn't state, like, really clearly, oh, he did a bad thing. But what I discovered when I was doing some study a while back is that the language that's used of... um, Sarah, his wife, took Hagar the servant and gave her to Abraham is exactly the same phrasing as when Eve took the forbidden fruit and gave it to her husband, Adam. And by subtly, the writer is saying, that's a bad thing. And then also, if we look at the process Of the covenant that God was making with Abraham, we can see that it nearly messed things up because God made these amazing promises or kind of like statements of intention to Abraham in Genesis 12. This is what I'm going to bless all the families of the earth through you and all these other details. Then in Genesis 15, he started to make this formal into a covenant. It was like sort of stage one. But then after that thing, this is, this is when that event happened with the servant and everything started to go bad. So it looked like Abraham really didn't have much faith and he was just trying to work things out himself. And the second stage of the covenant had all these funny laws attached to it and things didn't look good. And it ended up that God needed to test Abraham's heart again to see would he obey Did he really have faith? And that was that really strange story of Abraham binding his son Isaac as if to sacrifice him. But God prevented that at the last minute to show that no, he's not like the gods of the surrounding nations that would call for child sacrifice. That's not our God. But Abraham needed to show his obedience to no matter what was asked, he would do it. I'll just be very clear, God will not ask us to do that, okay? Just in case you're wondering. Yeah, huge test. But he passed because even though Abraham had messed up, he got himself back on the right track. And in Genesis 22, we see the final ratification of the covenant where God swears by an oath, and Hebrews talks about this, You know, normally with a covenant, you swear by oath by something higher than yourself. But God cannot swear by anything higher than himself because he's the highest, right? He's the most high God. So he swore by himself that he would fulfill those promises. This is who God is. He doesn't hold our past against us. But instead, he purifies our hearts and he remembers our righteous acts. Our unrighteous acts are moved as far from us as the east is from the west, Scripture tells us. You know, as a new believer, I was told about this image, this illustration of when you come to Christ, it's like you're letting him into the room of your heart. Your heart is pictured as, as a big house, and it's like you're letting him into the main room, the living room, and he's welcome to dwell there. Quite an interesting illustration. Any of you remember that? It's a, it's a real oldie. If you're, as, if you're as old as I am, you might know. Come on, Elliot, come on. <laughs> and, uh, but the idea was that around the edge of the main room, you've got these little closets, these little wardrobes, little hot water cupboards, little, little places that are dark and locked that need to be opened. And as a new believer you know I'd done things when I was younger and as, especially as a teenager that I was quite ashamed of and didn't want anybody to know but this illustration helped me to um, open up those doors and you know that scripture in first John 1 nine I think it is is that if we if, if we confess our sins God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins but also what to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and in Hebrews it's talked quite a lot before chapter 11 of this purification made for sins because it's not just the guilt where we oh we did something wrong that needs forgiven it's that shame that can be attached to it and I just felt to highlight shame that if there's anyone here feeling ashamed God wants you to know that your heart can be cleansed from any of that shame. So just receive that. So Abraham had a few hiccups along the way in his journey, but in the end, by faith, he showed himself to be believing in God's promises, and God is a God of redemption. He's always redeeming us. Verse 13 is the, maybe the verse that uh, sums up this section of the patriarchs. It says, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them, like kind of with the eyes of faith, and welcomed them from a distance. So Abraham was promised that all the peoples of the earth would be blessed through him. That his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sands on the seashore. But when he died, and even a little bit after he died, when his whole clan moved to Egypt to escape the famine for a period of time, I think they were only about 70-odd people at that time. Not that many, okay? But God was true to his word and fulfilled the promise, but my point is, and the writer's point is, is that these people didn't, in their lifetime, see the fulfillment, but they still held on to the end. And we benefit from that. Okay, so the third section, I'm going to pick out one person who I think is the most interesting person in this section, and that is a young lady called Rahab. Have got her there? That was a photograph taken back in... Uh, <laughs> yeah. So... This is a case where the Israelites had come back out of Egypt and they've had this land that's been promised to them that Abraham has actually purchased part of this land and been given uh, the land by God, but they've been away and have been inhabited by these other peoples, including the Canaanites, which we mentioned in the Noah story. And so Joshua, the new leader, after Moses died, he's led them across the Jordan River miraculously But as they enter the land, there's this place, Jericho, which is, I think the archaeologists tell us, it was more like a military outpost or a stronghold than a regular town or city. It had these big fortified walls. If you've been to Sunday school, you probably know the story of the walls come tumbling down. But in Joshua 2, we see that he sends these two spies into the city, and so... What do they do? They go and hide out in the house of a prostitute, as you do. Or maybe not. (laughs) The Bible's full of really weird stories, right? So Rahab, this marginalized person, is somehow different to the other people in Jericho because it says that they heard what God had done for Israel, but they didn't welcome them or give them passage. They resisted them. But somehow, Rahab had this mustard seed of faith, and she said, no, this is, God is with these people. And the king heard that spies had got into the city, but she gave them refuge, and when the king's men came, she, uh, she'd she hidden the spies, she misdirected the king's men, and after the men had gone, she lowered the spies uh, over the walls so that, so that they could. Escape at great risk to herself. Imagine if she'd been caught doing that. So, whereas most people decided to resist what God was doing, Rahab decided to assist them and had the faith to believe that God was with these people and that she needed to get on the right side for the sake of her whole household. So, if we fast forward to Joshua 6, when the stronghold is taken and destroyed only Rahab and her household are saved. And so this act of faith gets Rahab the sex worker, a huge commendation in the Hebrews heroes of faith, this chapter 11 that we're in now. Not only that, but as well as being in the list of the heroes of faith, if you go to um, Matthew chapter one, which is what some people think of, you know, those boring lists of genealogy, this person fathered this person and they fathered that person and on and on and on. Guess who shows up in there? Rahab. Yeah. And she gets to be, what is it? I think I worked it out. It's the great-great-grandmother of King David, the great king that God was going to work his promises out through, who was the ancestor of Jesus himself. Isn't that amazing? People like to say that history is written by the victors, the ones who win the battles, and anything that doesn't fit the story of the victors gets scrubbed out. I think that's true a lot of the time, eh? I think we understand something of this in our own nation as we're trying to grapple with our past in these days and trying to you know, put certain things right. It's not easy, but we recognize, you know, when there's been this violation of a covenant, things actually need to be put right. But interestingly, and this is what I love about the Bible, is that when the Bible was written, unlike a lot of other histories or the religious books of other religions, it wasn't written by the victors. Most of the Bible was written when God's people were the oppressed ones, and the exiled, and the disinherited. And it's interesting that so many people, when they first come to faith as a people, like I understand that the first Maori believers were really gripped by the story of the Israelites when they were in exile, and their exodus, their pathway out of exile into freedom, because they could relate to that. So then how does a random thing, like having Rahab in Jesus' genealogy and in this list, how does that help the cause of the new followers of Messiah who are trying to make a, a good impression on the world around them? And then Ruth. Ruth is also in Jesus' genealogy, and she was a Moabite. She was one of the, the evil ethnic group, the bad people, the ones we don't like, you know, the outsiders. But you see that God is all throughout the Bible, especially like in the Old Testament where things are very patriarchal and law-based. There is this disruption happening all the time where, oh look, this woman gets to be prominent over here. This person from the wrong background gets to be prominent over here. And we can see that God is disrupting things. So having Rahab and Ruth there, the first thing it does I feel it gives what some people call the ring of truth to the Bible. Because these were intelligent people that wrote these things down over many centuries. They could have you know, that's that's not gonna play well, you know, in the first century. That's not gonna play well in the twenty first century. We could scrub these things out. No, they keep them in because it's like a mark of authenticity that this is the truth and this is what God wanted to be declared. Secondly, it reveals God's heart towards the oppressed and the marginalized. And this is the message of the prophets sometimes, especially to the leaders who were oppressing the poor. He's like, don't you remember you were an oppressed people once and now you're oppressing others, including your own people? That's not God's heart. And it also shows that no one, nobody... And no act committed by anybody is beyond God's redemptive power and grace. We don't normally think of the prostitutes as the ones that will stand up on God's side. But here we have this amazing story. And so like all these sections, there's kind of little verses that sort of summarize something about faith for that section. And so in verses 39 and 40... Maybe this is for the whole chapter. It talks about all of these people, and it says they were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. Let's say none of them fully received. Rahab was um, saved from destruction, but she never knew what actually the consequences of her act really would be. Since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. And so some of your Bibles might say, not apart from us they would be made perfect. It's kind of weird. I like this NIV translation here. Only together with us, so that even though these people They were saved, and they did know God, and they did act in faith, but they never received all the promises. And in the book of Hebrews, there's been this message, Jesus was of a better priesthood and made a better sacrifice, and it's a better covenant, and all the promises are better that we can receive the blessings of this new covenant life in Christ that these people never could got a quote here from tom wright some of you might have come across him he says in other words the community that is now going to be described chapter 12 onwards the fellowship of those who follow jesus are establishing the true beginnings not just the advanced signs but the true beginnings of the world that god intends to make the world that is to be, the world in which justice and right will triumph. So remember I talked about how Adam was like the head of this creation, and then Noah was like the, the next head of this new creation. But it wasn't fully a new creation. It was a bit like the old one, and all this bad stuff happened. But Jesus is the head of the new creation, which has already been kicked off in our world and has had a massive influence in our world but we are still waiting for the fulfillment of that you know you might say well Andrew that's really nice that new covenant and all those blessings and the world has been changed because of Christ but my world is still a bit of a mess and things are tough There's huge change going on now, post-pandemic, financial issues, cost of living crisis, war in Ukraine, all these things. Well, firstly, I'd say, if we had social media in the first century, we'd know that it was way, way worse than what it is now, okay? We We do need a little bit of perspective, I think. Way, way worse. But that's not to deny that you might be in a difficult situation now. That's not my point. But actually there are also things going on that we don't hear about, like we've been hearing about, for example, that poor um, Kurdish Iranian woman who wasn't wearing her hijab properly and she got basically killed or murdered by the Iranian morality police. How's that for a bad name for a, a group of people? Oh no, the morality police are coming. Doesn't sound good, does it? Okay, that's terrible. It's exciting to see Iranians standing up against that sort of injustice, but you know what you don't hear is that, do you know what the fastest growing movement to Christ is in the world at the moment? That the people that study this stuff would say, most likely it's the Iranian church. So for the past few decades, two to three decades, the fastest growing movement of Christ has been amongst uh, Farsi speakers. Persians. Okay, so that's mainly in Iran. It's in the diaspora communities in the UK and other places. It's Farsi speakers around the place. They are so disillusioned with their form of Islam that basically they're turning to Christ in droves. The only reason that more of them haven't turned to Christ is that there aren't enough people to tell them. It's incredible. There's, you can Google it, there's information. Out there about it. So, just to say, yeah, we hear about all this bad stuff, but we don't hear about this amazing stuff. The writer to the Hebrews, though, tells us that even if we are facing persecution, because that church is facing persecution, believe me, we're actually better equipped to face these times than the ancients of faith were. If they can do it, you can do it. That's what the writer to the Hebrews is saying. And they were still on that, that cusp of the ages, what I would say, the ends of the ages, you know, Christ came. And they, was, they still had the backdrop of the old era and all the laws and all the persecutors on them. And, and the writers of the Hebrews are saying, how much better is it for us than what these people had? And what I'm saying is, how much better is it for us <laughs> than for those Hebrew believers in the first century? So, yeah. Just to let's recap those uh, these main points in the next slide. These heroes, flawed people that some of them were, they acted in faith, but they didn't receive the promise in their lifetime. Most of them, or well, none of them, did fully. These heroes acted in faith. And many suffered for it. They probably didn't put up their hand to be sawn in two or stoned to death or tortured or in all the big list. You can read, read the chapter. When you go home, read the chapter. It's just amazing if you haven't done that already. These heroes were not perfect, but they were remembered for their faith. Not their mistakes, not the bad bits, but they were remembered for their faith. They didn't get on the list of bad people in the Bible. They got put on the list of the people of faith. As I've said, the church at that time was on this pivot point of the ages and was encouraged to persevere like their forebears, like the ones that came before them. This great cloud of witnesses you'll probably hear about in the next chapter. This is who they were, but even more so because of Christ. So how much more can we persevere as we've got access to all the benefits of the new covenant and not weighed down by all the laws and rules and regulations of the old one. So as Pastor Ant said, when he's talking about chapter nine and chapter 10, he's like, if you're, if you're going from Auckland and you want to go to Cambridge and beyond, you don't have to go into Hamilton and drive down all these roads and get stopped at the traffic lights and have the speed limits and everything. You can get on that bypass, baby, and you can go <laughs> 110K. And no one's going to pull you over. Isn't that better? When we came, of course, we came through all the slow roads. (laughs) Because we needed to come to Hamilton. (laughs) But you get the point. Finally, I want to say to you that if you've been listening to this message and just tapping into the book of Hebrews, maybe for the first time, or maybe you're really familiar with it, but you're thinking, you know, Andrew, I don't know that I've really experienced that sense of inward purification, especially from shame that I mentioned earlier, that I I still feel unclean. and I have a sense that I'm not really good enough and that how could God accept me because there's something wrong with me as a person. Or you haven't experienced freedom from fear that you live with a lot of fear in your life about the future, about the unseen world, about whatever it is. God's help in your life it was our brother Joe, was it, that shared amazing help in his life. That's, that is just a really powerful testimony to the goodness of God and also the ability of Joe to recognize what's actually going on and what could have been. <laughs> an assurance of salvation, a clear conscience. These are all things that the writer of the Hebrews talks about. And the constant access that we have to God and Christ, that we don't need to go through mountains of rituals just to be able to say, God, help me. So, yeah, if any of those things are still an issue in your life, then I encourage you, to see someone on the team with the prayer people that we've had, our pastors, leaders, and get them to pray for you and get them to help you just by simple faith to take hold of these better promises that we have in Christ. There is so much more than you know. This is one thing I would wanna say if I could, whenever I speak to people, what would be one thing that I would wanna say to every group that I spoke to, and that is there's more than what you know. There's so much more than what you know in Christ. It doesn't mean following him that you won't face difficulties at all. Hopefully you won't be sawn in two, but (laughs) you won't be doing whatever difficulties you face. You won't be doing it alone, and you won't be doing it in your own strength, and you don't have to be like Abraham. I'll just figure this thing out for myself. God is with you. God's spirit has been poured out on all flesh so that all believers have, I just learned a new term, GPS, GPS, what was it? God's powerful spirit. In, in the old covenant era, it was the select few that had the anointing of God come on them for a specific task at a specific time. But in the new, we all get to receive the spirit, but most of us don't even know what we've got inside. That's what I'm saying. So if you don't know Christ, and even if you do, make the choice to step into that perfection and that cleansing and that bitterness that is Christ by faith today.